This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I have a special announcement for you today. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate, and for a limited time only, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gabfest, and more. For the past quarter century, Slate podcasts have been covering all the major news events from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Culture shows have debated if things are sexist, named the best summer songs, and explained the latest social media trends. If any of us have become a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus to keep us going for another 25 years. Again, we're giving you $25 off an annual membership through October 31st. So sign up now at slate.com slash mood plus. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Lux Alptraum, the creator and co-host of Audible's Say You're Sorry, a podcast about public apologies, the ones that have worked, the ones that have failed, and most of all, the ones that everyone can learn from. Lux, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk about apologies and advice and just being human and fucking up. I am also looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward uh, to hearing a little bit more later on about your own work, sort of assessing public. I like that you confine yourself to public apologies too. Just like, it's got to be one that we've all seen. Otherwise, we will never stop thinking about it. I mean, there's too many types of apologies. You got to pick a lane. There's so many. And I hope someday to read a full taxonomy uh, of all uh, unsuccessful apologies. Um and actually, yeah, I'm also just interested in thinking about apologies in terms of working and not working. I think that's a really like interesting sort of framework, um, especially since I think it's so easy to have different ideas of what an apology should do or can do that uh, I'm excited to hear more about yes. the, the metrics of success and failure. Yes. Do you have a favorite apology just before we dive in? I think, I think one that I really like like, it's hard to say, like, what is a favorite, right? But one that I really like, just because it's so unexpected that it worked, was Gabriel Zamora's apology during... He's a beauty YouTuber, and there was this thing called Dramageddon. It is not worth getting into what Dramageddon was, but it's basically, like, the same kind of stupid YouTube drama that one would expect, okay. but that has really high consequences because these people are making a lot of money and they might lose their following, but Gabriel Zamora did an apology during Dramageddon and against all odds, like number one, it was really sincere. It actually seemed like he understood what he did wrong. Like he was genuinely sorry. He took time and 
people were fans of it. Like he got not just like the person who he had insulted, but people who didn't even know him were like, oh, this was a good apology. Like we're on board. We're going to follow you now. And this was the same. This was the same YouTube drama that resulted in some of the worst apologies ever. I don't know if you've seen the Laura Lee fake crying apology, but this was. I don't think I even know who Laura Lee is. No, I mean. You are much healthier and have good boundaries and are not diving into the whole of YouTube. But Laura Lee caught up in this same drama, did an apology where she faked crying and everybody saw through it. Everybody was like, this is really bad. It routinely makes the list of like worst YouTube apologies ever. And it's fascinating to me that in that situation where a lot of people were apologizing badly in the com- a community like YouTube, which is like famous for terrible apologies, the idea mm. that you could find an apology that's like, oh, this actually feels sincere. This actually feels like it works. This person genuinely seems like they learned from what they did and is not going to make the mistake again. Like that's so fascinating to me. Um, and it's also that one's also interesting to me, too, because one of the things that separated Gabriel from other YouTubers who are apologizing is he was on his own. He didn't have a PR team. And I think mm. PR teams you think are going to help, but often hurt you in the long run and make your apology much worse. And that was a really fascinating aspect of it for me as well. It's so interesting, too, just thinking about you know, the the work that a public apology has to do, which in addition to like addressing the specifics of a given situation also has to create the appearance of sincerity. In addition to any sincerity that may already exist, it also has to look sincere. Like I, I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, but I, I'm certainly aware of ways in which one can say something sincerely and yet come across as calculating or odd or or uh, just miss the sort of point with somebody else. And then thinking about like, man, what does it mean when somebody tries to apologize and people generally think of it as like too calculating or fake? And then like, what does that then do to the, to the you know, would-be apologizer? It's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Well, and I mean, one of the things that's so unique to public apologies is that they're kind of inextricable from brand management. Like, it's not just about, are you feeling remorseful? It's like, what is your public persona going to be after this? And how is this going to harm or help your public persona? And like, obviously, for relatively minor offenses, it's pretty easy to just kind of come back, do a public apology, everybody moves on. But a lot of people only get moved to do a public apology when they have done something really bad. Um, one of the ones that we open up with in the show with is talking about like Justin Timberlake's apology that came in February. He apologized on Instagram to Britney Spears and Janet Jackson. And, you know, I think it was like decently phrased. I'm of the opinion, like glad he did it, like not necessarily the best possible way to do it, but like better to do it than not. But that one's interesting because it's like Justin Timberlake has just coasted on this. I'm a good guy. I'm an innocent little boy uh, reputation for decades, while women who have been in his orbit have often like suffered a lot of harm. And him apologizing, it's just interesting that it finally got to a point where he was like, well, I guess my reputation can't tolerate this anymore. I guess I have to say something. And 
it's debatable whether or not he actually learned something. But it's interesting to me that after decades of not really saying anything, he was finally like, okay, this is the brand management exercise we're doing today. So interesting too. And and now all I can think of, of course, is like that classic drill tweet of like a bunch of girls get mad at me. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm trying to delete it. Um, <laughs> which, which, you know, I, I, I realize there is always a drill tweet for everything. Oh, yeah. But it is, yeah, it, it is an interesting business. And um, it, it's interesting to think about how much the sort of nature of the public facing apology has changed over the last like, I don't know, 20 years. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Would you mind reading our very first letter? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this is Friendship Escape Velocity. I'm in my last year of college and since high school have always loved partying and drama. However, I've been dating my girlfriend for almost a year and she's been a really good influence on me. Going out to have fun without drinking or drugs, wanting to sleep with me only when I'm sober, generally making me feel good about myself. And I'm starting to feel like I'm maturing and ready for life outside school. My girlfriend's a year older, but never went to college and is already established in construction management. So she's got her life together, but never looks down on me. My actual problem is my friends from my program. We've all only had really toxic short-term sexual relationships in the past with fighting, cheating, and every other kind of drama. And now that I have a good loving one, it feels like the other queer girls are after my girlfriend. They see her to be cute and attentive to me and do anything to get her to pay attention to them instead. A girl fell down three times in one night so that my girlfriend would catch her before she hurt herself after she caught me when I stumbled. One started undoing her pants, telling my girlfriend to look at her piercing when we were talking about new piercings I wanted, asking her what she'd do if she met them first, etc. My girlfriend knows what they're doing, but is too gallant to let drunk girls hurt themselves. And I tell them to back off, but they pretend they're not doing anything and I'm jealous. I am, but it's a me problem. My girlfriend always makes me feel loved. One friend was telling a messy story about me and said something like, that's how you know she's not wife material. And my girlfriend looked angry for the first time, but just calmly disagreed and changed the subject. We left later and she asked if I wanted to start prioritizing other friends who made me feel good about myself. We're not partying with them anymore, but I have to work with them for our collaborative projects for the rest of the school year. Manipulating people in relationships and fighting over attention is something they do on the regular, and I want to be better for my girlfriend. How do I get them to stop without sinking to their level and feeding into the drama by blowing up at them? 
I, I, I felt such, such warmth from a distance <laughs> for this letter writer. Mostly, I think, because I was just so charmed by like, look, I have always loved partying and drama. Can't get enough of it. And I just, you know, obviously there's ways in which that, that can be not great. But I, I, I sort of just loved the like unabashed avowal of like, you know what I love? Fights. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I, I love the girlfriend. She seems really cool. She see. I also just like that she, I like that she's approaching it by being like, hey, do you <laughs> want friends who treat you better? Maybe that's a good choice for you. Like that's such a mature yeah. way to respond to somebody's friends trying to sabotage your relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I always want to like draw some sort of distinction between like, are they trying to actively sabotage your relationship? Or are they just like doing what they've always done, which didn't yeah. used to bother you and now it does? You know, not not to say that they're not clearly enjoying the drama themselves. I just don't want to assign too much like, where, uh, how could this be happening? Like, it's like, well, this is what you guys have always done with each other. Yeah. It's only newly a problem. Um, it's fine to, you know, start objecting to something that didn't used to bother you. It's just, it's less like they all got together and they were like, this letter writer's got a girlfriend. Let's ruin it. So much as like, you guys have just always been on this carousel. And all of a sudden you're like, well, this carousel is full of horses. This is terrible. (laughs) How did this happen? Oh yeah. No, it's Um, definitely like, it's definitely like you put on glasses and you're like, wait, there is messy queer drama all around me. Yeah. Yeah, and it's absolutely, you know, fine letter writer that you have sort of generally realized this is no longer serving me in the way that it used to. Um, And I would like to, uh, you know, look for other friends elsewhere. I would just also encourage you, I think, letter writer, not to necessarily think of it in terms of um, I used to love drama and then I, you know, became a better person simply by virtue of meeting my girlfriend. And now I need to transcend these bad people, Uh, which is not to say that they're not doing frustrating stuff. They, they sound yeah. like they are, but it's, you know, there will perhaps continue to be a small part of you, a little, a little drama loving imp that continues to love drama. So this is not just about getting other people to stop acting badly so that you can continue on the, the primrose path um, or the, the path of purity so much as trying to figure out, you know, what was I getting out of that? How can I you know, fulfill some of those needs for entertainment or intensity in other better ways? And how do I make sure that I act in a way that I think is sensible, regardless of what other people around me do? Yeah. For me, just the final question, I just feel like, okay, you've decided this, this dynamic is no longer serving you. And like, what do you do? And I'm like, you don't have to I guess I I got stuck on this, like, how do I get them to stop? And it's like, you don't. You yeah. let them, you let them be them. You don't engage with their behavior. You know, you have to be in a relationship that's no longer serving you for the rest of the school year. So just figure out a way to be polite, but potentially distant. Like don't engage. Like, I don't think, yeah, it's definitely not a, like, you must now fix your friends. You have seen the light. You must bring them to Jesus. It's like, no, you have found something that feels like it's working better for you. They are in a different place. You just have to figure out how to have a cordial relationship while not in it's. I mean, yeah, it's like if you get sober, that doesn't mean all your friends have to stop drinking. It means you have to figure out a way to be sober and hang out with people or have a relationship with people who drink 
in a way that's healthy for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you've already stopped going to parties. It sounds like you're sort of interested in prioritizing other friendships or seeking out other friendships. That's great. Beyond that, you know, how do I get them to stop? As you say, you you don't. Um, You know, if they say something that you object, you can leave or say, please stop. But again, that's sort of incumbent on you to, to remove yourself from the situation rather than say like, you need to stop behaving the way that you've always behaved. You just, <laughs> especially if you're not, it sounds like very interested in continuing these friendships. You just don't have a lot of grounds to get them to change. It's like change, but also I still don't want to hang out with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, for me, anytime I've been kind of locked into a relationship where I'm like, this is not serving me, but we are stuck together. I just, you know, sometimes I've handled it better than others, but you know, I try to just be cordial, not engage further and just kind of politely ride it out. Like, I think the worst thing you can do is get super distant because then you're just going to create drama. The other, another bad thing is blowing up at them. Like, you know, just be suddenly really busy and only have time for doing work with them. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, if there's a part of the letter writer who does still feel the pull of drama, there there might be ways in which just sort of like focusing on your projects and remaining friendly but distant otherwise would feel, you know, unsatisfying, like it doesn't really suit the situation. And there's a part of them that's maybe going to be looking for, you know, as soon as the next person does something kind of out of line, I'm going to get to have my like, and this is what's wrong with you moment where I get to list (laughs) everything that they've done wrong in the last year that I've put up with and just get to have a big spectacular blowout and I'll feel really good and really self-righteous. And yeah, I would encourage you not to do that letter writer. I don't think that that would serve you very well. I I doubt that it would result in them being really chastened and saying like, wow, you're really right. Uh, I gotta, I gotta rethink my stuff. I I think it's just a question of like, hey, great to see you. Gotta run. Like do that a lot. Well, yeah. And I I think it's also, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up like the attraction to drama because I think a lot of times when we identify unhealthy behaviors, it's really tempting to just go cold turkey and be like, well, I am a new person. I'm like not doing any of this anymore. And that's often not actually sustainable or healthy. And if you don't like address like what was appealing to you, what is still exciting? Yeah. You're just going to channel that energy in a completely unhealthy other direction. Like, oh, I'm not doing drama, but now I'm lecturing people. And yeah, yeah. that's not and, a good, not a good strategy. I think there are also ways to like, obviously the, every, every anecdote that the letter writer has shared here sounds, you know, at best wildly inappropriate, but sometimes I think, especially, you know, if you're in college or like you, you've, you've only had a few years of sort of like running all your own socialization outside of the family home, it can be easy to list any and all forms of conflict from the most like ordinary and anodyne and necessary too wildly unnecessary and inappropriate as like, it's all drama. It's all bad. And, you know, um, you know, frankly, like your, your girlfriend, I think is a pretty solid model of handling weird moments or conflict without, you know, tipping over into drama. Like just saying, like, yeah, I disagree. I don't like that. Let's talk about something else. And, you know, gently suggesting to you that you might want to focus on other friendships. Those are great. Uh, those are great examples. Yeah, she's a, she's a gem. I totally be like big fan of your girlfriend. Definitely think mm-hmm. she is setting a good tone. Yeah, if if you know, 
Uh, I just want to throw this out there too. If you two do break up, I noticed letter writer, you say, I want to be better for my girlfriend. And I'm I'm torn there because half of me is like, okay, but if you broke up, it would be really fun to see you do a full like Richard's himself again moment and just be like, back in the drama, babies. I'm going to steal all my friends' girlfriends. But your life is not a television show that I am watching. You are a real person, presumably. I don't know. You could be making this up. In which case, you know, it will hopefully also be good to think about, you know, not just how do I learn from my good girlfriend's example, but also like what what will I value in new friendships? What is important to me? What's the balance of, you know, reasonable behavior and a little bit of wackiness that feels good to me um, so that it's not just about making your girlfriend happy such that if things don't work out forever between the two of you, you won't feel like, well, that was for nothing. That was just to keep her happy. Yeah. If you want to be, if, if the drama is that strong a pull, like, maybe it's not the right relationship for you. (laughs) But no, I think it is good. You should be getting rid of the drama for yourself if if you feel it's not serving you more than for the girlfriend. I do think that that's, I do think it's understandable that relationships inspired people to be better, but I also agree that if that's your central motivation, it can get unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, beyond that, I can also understand your frustration at your friends sort of pointedly saying things that make you look bad or like pointedly trying to get your girlfriend's sort of romantic attention. And I would hope, letter writer, when you say sometimes you feel jealous, like if you can remind yourself of like, those don't seem effective. Your girlfriend does not seem like, wow, when that girl fell down repeatedly and then tried to take her pants off. I realize I'm conflating two of the girls, but you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) oh, that was, that was hard to resist. Like you can also hopefully, I think, remind yourself like, it's frustrating because my friend is treating me in a like dismissive and sort of instrumentalizing way, but it's also not actually harming me so much as it's making them look foolish because my girlfriend is not like, wow, that's hot. My girlfriend is like, God, that's embarrassing for you. Can we go? Yeah. And I think what it was gesturing towards too is like that fraught feeling of, I know my friend well enough to know that they are acting with plausible deniability and that they are, you know, to a varying degree of consciousness trying to do something they know is a little shitty or underhanded. And what I want to do is just say, I know what you're doing. And the frustrating thing is then they can just say, no, I'm not. You're paranoid. But I know, like, I know what I know. I just don't have the proof. And there's, again, that kind of squirrely desire for, if I can just get you to admit that that's what you're doing, then it'll be better. And I think that's just um, a, a waste of time and energy, usually, for this kind of relationship. So just, again, you don't need them to agree. Like, you're right. I was trying to make you jealous on purpose. You can just say, like, that's weird. Knock it off and then head out. And it's also like they might not be aware of what they're doing. Like, a lot of times I think we ascribe a lot of agency to what is just chaotic, messy behavior. Yeah. Yeah. There's That's such a good reminder of oftentimes we are not uh, in great minute-by-minute contact with our own motivations. Oftentimes, we might have multiple motivations. Oftentimes, it's very easy to lie to oneself about one's motivations. Um, There's many ways in which people might be acting badly, but not necessarily because they woke up that morning and made a sinister checklist. Yeah, I don't think anybody has like a three-point plan to get the girlfriend. If you find any suspicious pieces of paper lying around, um, I mean, again, it wouldn't really change anything, but um, it is funny to imagine. Thank you. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. All right, we're going to move on to our next letter. I will read this. This is, you know, very much, I think, in line uh, with your 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 recent work. So I'm, I'm glad I got to say this one for you. Uh, the subject is lingering guilt. I'm struggling with guilt about something unkind I did a few years ago. I went on several dates with someone who was very invested in a celebrity, so much so that she even had a dedicated Twitter account exclusively for posting photos, news, and memes about this person. I thought it was corny at best and a little disturbing at worst. Although I liked her a lot, I just couldn't get my head around this behavior. One day on my private Tumblr account, I shared a screenshot of some of her tweets intending for my friends to weigh in on how strange they thought this behavior was. My post had a mocking tone to it. Well, you guessed it. She found out what I did, was justifiably hurt, told me as much, and then stopped talking to me. I regret it immensely, both the immature and unkind act itself and the pain I caused her. I sent an apology at the time, but I know that she blocked me on several platforms, so I'm unsure if she ever saw it. I've accepted that I'll never have another conversation with her, but how can I cope internally with the harm I caused? Yes, this is, I mean, a, not that I have mocked people on Tumblr, but like, I definitely know the feeling of like, I feel so much guilt over a thing that I did. Like, I know the relationship is irreparable or sometimes the relationship is fixed, but you still feel the guilt. And, mm-hmm. and what do you do to move on? So there's, there's a couple parts. Like one, it's interesting to me that this letter writer, that you're linking the apology and your guilt, because one of the things that I think is really important about apologies is they're not for the person apologizing. They're for the, the victim of, of the harm. Like I think apologies are really important to, put a harm on the record to say like, this was a bad thing, like, especially with public apologies, they're kind of a way that we as a society say like, these are bad things. If you do this, you should acknowledge that this was not a good thing to do and people shouldn't follow your example. And so, you know, you write an apology. The apology is not really about alleviating your guilt. The apology is kind of a gift to the person that you've harmed where you say you were right to be angry. Um, I I think the best apologies say you were right to be angry and you don't have to forgive me. It's up to you. I just want you to know you, you were right. I was wrong and I wish you the best. And I, I really hope that that you can feel healed. I mean, this is a relatively minor offense, so I don't think we need to get overwrought about it. But, you know, she clearly decided that this was something where you are not a person she wants in your life. And so whether or not she got the apology, 
kind of doesn't matter if she got it. She doesn't want to talk to you. If she didn't get it, she doesn't want to talk to you. Um, and and I I think so. Then this question is like, if she had gotten it and responded, would that have absolved your guilt? Because I don't think it necessarily should have. Like I think when we talk about like guilt over past actions, what we really have to ask ourselves is like number one, like why did we do this thing? Do we understand why it was wrong? And are we in a place where we're not going to do it again? And sometimes you can have the answers to all of that and still feel just like, oh, I was such a piece of shit in the past. And like, I hate that I can't undo that. But I think like the best way to deal with your guilt is say, look, yeah, I was a piece of shit in the past and I'm not anymore. And I'm not going to do that. And, And so I wonder, like, are you in a place where you comfortably feel like, Okay, I I learned my lesson. I I am not a person who's going to do that anymore. And yeah, I mean, and and do you understand like the full extent of like why was this wrong, or do you understand also why you did it? I think that's a big important thing to deal with because if you don't understand why you did it, and you don't understand like why you would do something kind of knee jerk mean, then that's a hard one to like get over your guilt because you kind of have to tap into like okay. This is what I was going through. This is why I thought it was okay to do this. And I don't think that anymore. And I'm a different person. I can't change the past, but I can be confident that like, I won't do that again. Yeah. I I think that's so interesting too, because as we were talking about a little bit in our first letter, you know, there's the, I want to caution this letter writer against the sort of like fantasy that you will necessarily be able to come up with one single final perfect explanation for why you did something. But it is a useful opportunity for some investigation. You can certainly, I think, do some introspective work around like, what are some possible things that I got out of that? Um, Why did I choose that route rather than a different route that didn't involve even like a, you know, quote unquote, private social media account, which is like, how private can a social media account be? I don't really know. Um, I think there are ways in which it is obviously less private than, for example, a text conversation or a phone conversation or a conversation that takes place through two human beings talking in the same physical space. So um, yeah, not that you have to solve the question of like, why did I do something like this? But um, to certainly think about like, when did you learn about this Twitter account of hers? Was this something that she told you about? Was it something that she told you about right away? Was it something that she seemed proud of and excited to share with you? Was it something that you found out after you'd had a couple of good dates and that kind of changed your assessment of who she was? Um, Did you consider, once you did find out, saying something like, I don't want to go out again? Um, Like, did you consider that that was a deal breaker or were you looking for encouragement from your friends to sort of gin yourself up to being able to end this nascent relationship over that? Um, were you worried that that wasn't a good enough reason? Um, you know, there, there are all sorts of possible contexts for when you found out what you felt about it, how much more time you spent learning about it, and then what you wanted to do next. None of which is going to necessarily like solve the problem. Um, but which again, will I, I think feel a little bit more productive than just occasionally like running over that pebble in your mind and having that flash of, Oh God, I'm a bad person. Um, which I think can be really unuseful when it comes to thinking about, I don't know, regret, closeness, intimacy, contempt, sincerity, uh, mawkishness, all these things uh, are are 
complicated. And, and I appreciate, Lex, as you were saying earlier, you know, you hurt this woman's feelings. It was mean. You didn't ruin her life. You know, you did something underhanded and semi-public, semi-private behind her back in a way that I, I don't want to ascribe too much motivation to you, but like, I think you had to have known on some level this was not the most private way you could have gone about raising the issue with your friends. So again, without saying like you obviously wanted to get caught, I do think you you must concede to yourself that you did not think my private Tumblr account is the most secure avenue for this communication, right? Does that does that feel like a bridge too far? Like, I really don't want to say like, obviously you wanted to get caught, but like there's something there, right? I feel like by the era of Tumblr, like I, I was a live journal kid and like live journal did like weirdly feel private in part because not that many people were on the internet. I mean, I think to me, by the time Tumblr rolled around, you kind of had to know that Tumblr wasn't really private, but you know, people believe whatever they want when it's convenient. Like some people still kind of feel like Twitter is a private conversation with their friends. So it is, yeah, it is one where I'm like, you should have known, but I also know that a lot of people just don't think that through. So it's a question mark. I don't even mean it in terms of like, you ought to have known better. <laughs> therefore, that was your problem. So much as like, I think that that's a, an interesting yeah. place of investigation of like, you know, was it the fact that she had a public Twitter account that made you feel on some level like this is already sort of a public conversation and therefore a semi-private social media account is the right place to weigh in about her social media use. Again, that doesn't like do much in terms of like explaining or justifying. It's just interesting to follow the path of, of where your train of thought was leading you. Yeah. For me, I'm like, that's something I would text. The one thing I, I also want to address, because again, like I get stuck on the fact that this feels like we all get hung up on different things, but as far as offenses go, like this is not somebody you knew very well. Like it's a shitty thing to do, but it's not like you killed her cat. Like you, you were a jerk. She decided she didn't want to be in your life. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder, like, are you hung up on it? Not because of the incident itself, but because it's kind of this like convenient way to explore other feelings that you have. Like, is this just like a thing that like, you can return to to project other feelings of just distress about yourself or other like discomfort. Like, and I, I just bring that up as, as somebody with a history of intrusive thoughts and mm. various mental health issues. It's like sometimes the things that we latch onto and ascribe important importance to are not actually the things that are troubling us. It's just a thing where we can look to and be like, well, I feel like I'm a shitty person and this is the proof. But resolving that one question isn't going to make you feel like less of a shitty person because it's not really about that situation. Yeah, you know, I, th I think there's just also a question too. Again, like, I don't know what this Twitter account was like. I don't know what the nature of the posts or what the tone of the posts were. And that's not to say like, if it was a certain type of account, then what you did was good. And if it was another kind, it was bad. Again, so much as just like, I don't know what you found disturbing about it. If it was simply the like fixation on a single famous person, or if it was like she was posting like, uh, you know, geotagged updates of where the celebrity was traveling on a given day and being like, uh, I, you know, I, I'm making a wig out of your cast off hair from your garbage. Like again, you don't, I, I feel like the letter writer would have included that information if it was present. So I'm inclined to think it was more just that it like pinged on your, like, this is weird radar rather than like, I think she's doing something like wrong or unsafe. 
Um, so, you know, just again, I think kind of ask yourself, when I run into behavior that exists on a like probably harmless, but some sort of cringeworthy scale, how much time and energy do I want to dedicate to it? And what do I feel like I can own saying about it? You know, like there's also, I think, an important question here of when do you want to own your own meanness? Um, when do you want to say, I said something mean, I did something mean, I stand by it. I'm not going to pretend that it was nice or justified, but I do stand by it. And again, that may not be this particular uh, moment, but I think sometimes there can be this real tension between a desire to, you know, criticize something or to mock something, but then if if it kind of gets out outside of the sort of closed vacuum that you wanted it to be in, there can be that sudden moment of panic of like, but actually I need everyone to like me and I need to be nice all of the time. And so there can be a tension between a desire for, you know, as in our earlier letter, some drama uh, that's then often like immediately followed by, but I need everyone to be cool with me. And those things are just obviously at intention with one another. So again, not to say like you should reevaluate this and decide that you're proud of what you did, but I, you know, I, I think it is important to sometimes think about, are there ever circumstances in which I would be like willing to sign my name to something mean? And, and if so, you know, what are those things and how would I determine those moments? Um, and then beyond that, if you just feel like ultimately what I should have done was when I found out about the Twitter account, asked some of my friends for their like private feedback, made a decision, and then either just said like, thanks, it's been nice. I don't want to go out again. Um, or said like, I find this Twitter thing really weird. I don't want to go out with you again because of that, which could be really its own separate letter of whether or not that would even have been a necessary conversation. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think this is all a really roundabout way of saying I think you will maybe get a little farther by saying like, I said something mean about this woman indirectly because for whatever reason, I didn't feel prepared to say something to her that was direct. And what do I want to do in the future uh, instead? Yeah. Beyond that, I think I would even encourage letter writer to sort of move away from language. Like I was this type of person before and I'm this type of person now, just because I think many types of people, if not all types of people are still capable of meanness in any given moment Certainly, I understand the sort of question of like whether or not you make it a habit or if it's a pattern versus, you know, less less of one uh, with with hopefully like character development and growth. But, um, you know, you are still capable of like in-group, out-group behaviors. You are still capable of marginalizing somebody you don't like. You are still capable of mockery. You are still capable of meanness. None of that is ever going to go away completely. Um, so it's really just a question of figuring out how do I want to deal with those impulses within myself when they come up? Yeah. I also, I, I, I don't like being the person who's like social media is making us mean, but I, I do think that there's a way in which like being on Tumblr, being on Twitter, like makes it easier to just sort of post a joke about somebody that you don't even think about. Like, did I hurt somebody? Like, did I do this? And like, that's also just sort of like a general check-in. I think. Is, is useful for everybody, but especially like if this is a thing you have lingering guilt about, like is your social media behavior geared towards like, I'm going to make an easy joke about this weird person. I'm going to say a thing that is maybe a little mean because I feel uncomfortable with something. Like if, if that's something that you have a habit of doing and are still doing, like it's, it's possible that the guilt is related to the fact that it's a continuing thing and that that was like the one time when you really, really saw how it hurt someone. 
Um, but I just generally, I have for myself, I try to have a no dunks policy on Twitter where I'm not dunking on it. Cause it's so easy to quote, tweet someone and be like, you're a dumb dumb. And I really, I used to do that a lot more. And I really had to revisit like, is this putting value in the world or is this just like a cheap way to vent frustration and potentially at somebody else's cost? And I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I do really try now if I'm quote tweeting to think like, am I adding value? Like, does this person, am I just being mean to someone or am I being constructive? And I think that's made me just feel better about myself. Yeah. I I think, again, it comes down to kind of that question of like, how much meanness am I willing to sign my name to? (laughs) And you may come to different times in your life where you feel like I... I need to ratchet it way down. You may come to points in your life where you feel like I'm in danger of tipping into smarm and I need to like maybe reassess uh, what I categorize as mean versus what I categorize as critical. That's another possible pitfall. Um, But, you know, I I think to that end in terms of like what the letter writer I think is seeking is like proportionality. How can I cope internally with the harm I caused? I would say, you know, when you're using language like that, specificity is going to be your friend. If it helps in those moments where you're just feeling like all systems alert, a red light is blaring. I'm bad. I, you know, I'm the, I'm the jerk from she's all that. I just like pants some, I just did carry, you know, like I just put pig's blood (laughs) on a girl with a, a murderous mother and I've just pushed her over the edge. You know, the harm you caused is you said something bitchy about a girl you'd been out on a few dates with. It hurt her feelings and she didn't go out with you again. That's what happened. So the harm you caused is that you hurt her feelings. And then what she did with that was not talk to you again. She has not spent the rest of her life since that day, like wallowing in a pit, looking at a picture of you, thinking that was the last day I felt joy. And I think, again, one of the ways that we can get thrown off kilter when we come to terms with the ways that like our actions affect other people is we want to think of ourselves as being kind of harmless. Like I want anything mean that I do either to be funny and cute Or if people don't like it, I want them to immediately give me the benefit of the doubt or say it's okay because of this or that, or I want them to forgive me. And that desperate need can really get in the way of just like sanity and effectiveness. And so just say in that moment, like the harm I caused was I hurt her feelings. And the thing that she did with that was stop talking to me. Yeah. I think, I think there's also this element of like wanting to be the main character. Like, do you do you need to feel like she was deeply like, is is it worse if she was just like, oh you suck. I don't want to talk to you. I'm blocking you. So I don't have to think about you. Like, I think there is something unsatisfying when you feel like, oh, wait, this person can just end the relationship and I can't have any closure. But sometimes, you know, it's, that's the situation, not because you did something grievous, but because they just assessed that you were not worth engaging with and they wanted to just cut you out. And and so, yeah, but, but at the same time, I feel like for some people, potentially for the letter writer, like this idea of like, oh, I did something bad and this person decided they just wanted to walk away and never talk to me again is almost harder than like, and they were destroyed because it lessens your own importance in their life. Like the idea that they are suffering over your actions and need the apology can feel more satisfying than the idea that you did not matter enough to torture them. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's that's really like a, a big part of where the, the focus is for me here is that sense of like, well, if I think of myself as, you know, a person worth, you know, 
being around or, or experiencing um, who did something mean. And this person seems to think of me as just another asshole. How do I reconcile those two things? You, you don't have to. Like, she is allowed to think of you as just another asshole who she never wants to see again. And you are allowed to think of yourself as a more complicated and rounded person because you live with yourself every single day and she only saw you four times. Um, and so again, like if there's a part of you that just goes full tilt when you're like somebody out there doesn't think well of me and never will, and there's not really anything I can do about that and that feels unbearable, I think it's easy sometimes to call that guilt when what actually it is is like, I don't want to accept that we can live in a world where I don't get to control how other people think of me. And that is the stuff that I think is really, really worth just like sitting down and saying out loud like five times in a row, like, Kathy doesn't like me. I still like myself. I did something mean that hurt Kathy's feelings. Kathy doesn't want to be my friend. I still want and need to live with myself. And I have a more complicated conception of myself than Kathy does. Those things are all true. They're all reasonable. They're all appropriate. Um, And again, I think that's where something about like owning your own meanness sometimes comes in handy. Not because I think it's a good thing to just always say like, whenever I was a bitch, it was great. And for good reasons and fine. So much as just like, sometimes I'm mean. And sometimes I don't apologize for it or don't take it back in time or don't feel sorry, but I don't like that somebody else doesn't like me as a result. And that's part of life. Yeah, I I will say, I think this is going to be my final thought on this. I sent an apology letter, I think a year ago-ish. I, I forget when it was, but it was basically years ago. I had worked with someone. I was in a bad situation. I acted in ways that they felt harmed by. At the time, they were really angry at me. I was also like significant. I was a few years older than them and like in a different life space. And when it was happening, I was like, I they have a right to be mad at me. I understand that I'm in a really bad place and that's why everything's unfolding. But I also like, don't think that they're bad for being mad at me. And like this relationship is over and I get it. And, you know, for a few years, I just sort of let it sit. And then about a year ago, I was like, you know, I actually, I had a dream that I apologized to them. And then I was like, I'm going to do it. And I sent them what I felt was a really heartfelt apology letter where I was like, you were right to be mad at me. I disappointed you. I'm not going to make excuses. Like, I want you to know, like, I'm deeply sorry. And I completely understand why you're angry. And I never heard back from them. And I had to be okay with that because I I wasn't sending that apology to absolve myself. I was like, I understood what situation I was in and why things unfolded that way. And I just wanted them to understand that I wasn't angry. And if learning that I wasn't angry at them did not change their feelings about me. That's just how the cookie crumbles. Like I, I couldn't beat myself up about that. I'm I'm so glad we've kind of stepped away from that individual question and are more just sort of like in the general uh, world of, of the life of the apology. Cause this, I think will, will take us in nicely to talking a little bit about your, your show. But yeah, I, I think that's, it's always such a complicated equation in terms of like, when is context necessary when is it helpful? When is it appropriate? Um, when is it window dressing? When is it, you know, unhelpful? Um, and and what do we do with the part of ourselves that always wants to contextualize things we've done that hurt somebody else or that we're not proud of? Whereas we always want to take full credit for good things that we do. Of like, well, that that's because of my character. 
But whenever I do something bad, it's because I was unhappy that day or something else was going on with me. Um, like there's always a, a an in the moment justification as opposed to, you know, sitting with, well, sometimes I like to be a bitch. It feels good and I have fun. And then I feel ashamed and then I feel desperate to be liked. And I don't know how to reconcile all four of those things in a row. Yeah, I always feel like the most important thing if you are apologizing to someone is separating out impact and intention because it doesn't matter what you intended. And sometimes like your internal drama does not matter. What matters is like, what was the impact of your actions? You know, one of the reasons why we get so many like extremely either navel-gazy apologies or just refusal to apologize because people are stuck in their own internal drama And like, honestly, that means they're not in a place where they can apologize. And like, we should all just accept that. (laughs) Um, But but I think like sometimes the the most helpful thing you can do with an apology is take your ego out of it and kind of look at it as this like, okay, my actions harmed somebody in X, Y, Z ways. I should acknowledge that. And then I should figure out, like, are there steps that I can take to repair the situation, to make them feel better, or at a bare minimum, to just prevent it from happening again? And like, yeah, you should do the personal work, but the personal work is separate from... The personal work is what leads to the apology. It is not like within the apology. I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to something like um, your own podcast, where it's, I, it's sort of a, a, an assessment of a variety of public apologies. Do you have a sense of, for the people who might be either reading the apologies um, as they come up or hearing about them through your show, do you think the idea is like, the idea is to learn from this so that we can ourselves do better if we are ever in a similar position? Or is it more simply just like, it, it's good to learn about these things because you know, human interactions are complicated and, and varied and it's just useful to know more. Like, do you have a sense of like, are we training listeners up to do better apologies like when their time comes or is it more about analyzing uh, relationships after they've sort of fallen apart? I'd say it's, a, I'd say it's probably a little of both, but it's much more uh, the former. Like my motivation for doing this show came out of work that I have done with abuse survivors and my own experience with abuse. And specifically like several years ago, I was in Boulder with my speaking agent and we were just having a discussion about like, what kind of talks should someone do in a post me too era? And I was just like, you know, I feel like people are not talking about apology. And I feel like apology is kind of an important next step. Not that like, Oh, Bill Cosby apologizes and it's all great. But like, if you are looking, especially at like lower level harms, like if you're looking at like, okay, abuse exists, what do you do next? It's like, you kind of have to figure out a way to recognize the harm, flag it, and like come up with a plan for going forward. And so I was like, yeah, I think I want to teach people how to apologize better And over the course of, I guess, like two years-ish, that evolved into a podcast pitch that initially was a little bit more advicey focused and then eventually became just like narrative stories of public apologies. So just telling the story of the apology, talking about like what we can learn from this apology. But at, at the core, for me, it's always been like, I want people to recognize apologies as good things. And I want people to think more deeply about the role that it plays in their own lives. 
because and when I say like I want people to think of apologies as good things, I think it's like very a lot of people are very dismissive of apology. And that's because a lot of apologies are bad. But to me, like at its core, like what an apology should be is is a good thing. And the fact that it's kind of like perverted, like I, I want us to <laughs> I want us to recognize apologies are fundamentally good because they can be used in abusive ways, they can be used in really bad ways, but I'm an optimist on this front. And so I do focus on like the really the potential that apologies have to restore power to the victim. I think like that to me is like really important and I want people to do that. Lux. Yes. We're done with the show. Thank you so, so much. I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk. No, I loved it. Um, I look, yeah, very excited to hear this. And thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music, Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I think I think easiest question for me about like should I stop working for him? Like I don't think I don't think you're under any ethical obligation to sever ties with like the person who is paying you to do a job. Like that's not an endorsement of them or their ethics. Like you right. are just taking money to do a job. I think if everyone were yeah. morally responsible for the person <laughs> who paid them's behavior, uh, yeah, that would be bad. Uh, which, again, is not to say that, like, if you're in a position where you are able to, uh, you know, leave a job that, like, brings up serious ethical qualms for another one, that can absolutely be worth doing. I just mean, like, please don't worry that you have to, you know, endorse him by occasionally, I don't know, mocking up reports or whatever he asks yeah. you to do. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten Lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.